Everybody, why don't we go ahead and begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we've got a lot to cover today. We're going to be talking about uh, the calling to love. Um, we will have a video that we're going to watch a little bit later on. So just a reminder, y'all, what I said last week applies to this week. Every week, your reflection will be due by 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Do not know why it needs to be turned in late, but by 8 a.m. Monday morning. It also needs to be three to 500 words long, not two sentences. Uh, So let's comply. I don't have to explain this every week so that we can all make Jesus and Mary and Father happy. We're, all, we're old enough to be able to understand this. Uh, th- there were some of them were very good. I think some of y'all were getting what I'm trying to drive at here uh, to show that you've thought about things and to put it down in an organized uh, fashion, not just pious ramblings. But... Anyhow, so we're going to be looking at life in the Spirit, life in Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ, to have our our minds and our hearts purified? And there is um, no chance to to sort of live and understand a Christian sexual ethics or a life as a disciple of Christ without a discussion of love. And so what, what what do we talk about when we talk about love? It's a word that's used quite often. There's no chance to discuss it without talking about that twofold commandment from Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. But what does it mean to love? it mean to love? How is it defined? It's used so much in popular music and culture. This is sort of romantic, even eroticized love, love that is based primarily in feelings and sentiments. It's not really love, or at least the love that Christians uh, adhere to. So how do we how do we understand it? How do we define it? So that's what we're going to spend today looking at. We're looking at marriage. We're looking at sexual ethics. We're looking at just the general Christian state of life, even as a celibate priest or a religious sister, we are called to love. So what I want to do is, yeah, sort of looking at it from a theological perspective, but y'all had the opportunities to be able to read uh, a lot of the readings about love and and eros. Uh, I think particularly Balthazar's article, The Calling to Love is Important. Hopefully most of y'all read from this version of love and responsibility, uh, unlike other versions, but that's the more recent translation. The other one is, I think, still good and acceptable and understandable. But my concern is remaining too theological and sort of intellectualizing love. I sort of want to speak today from a more realistic perspective, uh, a perspective of experience. And, And we're going to kind of maybe go in some random directions today. We'll see how it flows, even though when I made the class, I was, I was pretty happy with it. But this call to love is so important. 
humans cannot, persons cannot understand ourselves unless we see ourselves within that call to love. John Paul II, in his first encyclical letter, Redemptor Hominis, number 10, very, very important quote, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. He does not encounter love. If he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it, in it, unquote. So how do, we, how do we define love? Well, in English, we have one word, love, to encompass all the different experiences or the forms of love. We say, I love eating pizza. I love music. I love my country. I love my friends. I love my dog, my spouses, my neighbors, even my enemies covers a lot of different types of things that we can love, a lot of different sentiments. And so we, we normally, at least in the Western world, go back to the Greeks and, and how they explained and defined love. They had different words for it. And if you read C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, I really encourage you reading the whole thing. He explains a lot of it. And even uh, Pope Benedict sort of makes some distinctions in his Deus Caritas Est, the first part, 1 through 18. We're going to sort of focus on three of these words today, not necessarily specifically. In a certain sense, we're going to see how they all kind of flow into each other. But the first is philia, friendship, general friendship. Second is eros. We can look at it in a more theological way of, or philosophical of that desiring for the infinite to go beyond ourselves. But practically, it's the love shared between man and woman. Um, and then finally, agape. Charity, the word that is most frequently used in the New Testament, that self-giving, that self-sacrificial love. So we're going to speak of them individually, but in a lot of our discussion, they're going to, as I said, sort of blend together. You know, Pope Benedict, he, he says in Deus Caritas that eros, which is that ascending love, and agape, which is the descending love that comes from heaven that's poured into our souls, can never fully be separated. And then in a relationship, uh, particularly in marriage, there's going to be an interchange of agape, eros, and also philia. So you read your, do your readings to understand the distinctions, but I'm going to kind of just talk about love in general, and I think we, we sort of know what we're talking about. First of all, we've got to begin, if we're going to understand love, at least from a Christian perspective, the fact that God is love. It's the first letter of St. John. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. And he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God is made manifest to us, that God sent his only Son to the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so what's important about this quote is, and I'm going to focus on, yes, we owe that primary love to God with all our minds, heart, and souls. But since we're talking about love and marriage, and love in the state of life, we're going to assume that we know we're supposed to love God and through prayer and the sacraments, we're going to really be focusing on how we receive God's love and then love each other. 
a love and, and a belief in love, that God is love rooted in the Trinity. So if I love or I am love, it assumes there's a beloved, a beloved for whom I can show that love. So if God is love and we know that God is eternal, then there must be another beloved from all eternity in order to receive that love. And from the reception of that love, the son receives the love and then gives it back to the father. And from that comes the, the superabundance of the love, the bond, the trinity, the fruit, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And from that superabundance of love, it's not enough just to stay within the context of that inner intertrinitarian dimension of gift and relation and person, but it spills over into God's desire to create and to reveal himself. Sacrament of creation we've talked about and the hermeneutics of the gift. Even revelation, God is not obliged to reveal himself to us. He does it, why? Because of the fruit, uh, because of the superabundance of his love and his desire to give himself to us. So much so that even after we sinned, he sent his son to die and to save us. This is that love which is self-giving, canonic, and is willing to give oneself to pour oneself out, to die for the other. And so as a result, in our union with Christ and our love for God, we are called to love one another, not just with human love, but with that charity, the love that has been poured into our hearts, the gift of the Spirit that we talked about, who is the bond of love. The key is, I think the important thing, is that God has loved us first. God has loved us first, and we have to notice that. God has loved us, and so the question is then, what becomes our response? What's our response to that love? We receive the gift of love. We receive the gift of our identity, of the Holy Spirit poured into our souls. We have gratitude, and we respond by returning love to God, who, with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul and strength, and to love then our neighbor. The problem, though, is this. What's the problem? What's the problem? Uh, why in this receiving and accepting God's love? Anybody want to take a guess? Why is it, if we know this is true, why is it so hard for us to love others then? Yes, Treville. We're still struggling with the effects of sin. Sin is still present. True. This is absolutely true. But I'm going to say the problem is so many of us know we are loved by God in our mind here, but we've never experienced it. There's the difference between saying, I know that someone loves me, or I know that God loves us, but we've never experienced it. As human beings, as that composite of body and soul. The truth is, you can have an intellectual knowledge. Like I said, you can know about Jesus, but unless you know the person of Jesus, it's just going to be following rules. How many of us really know and have experienced the fact that God loves us? Many of us do not know that. Why? And probably, I'm going to say there are a number of different reasons, but one of the main reasons that we have a hard time going from here to here, to the heart, which is that sort of symbol of the core of who we are as humans, is because we don't love ourselves. We don't love ourselves. Remember, the commandment of God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
It's going to be very hard to love our neighbor as ourselves, to allow that love to transform us if we do not love ourselves. Many people, even priests and even religious, have convinced ourselves that we are unlovable, unworthy of love, or somehow that we have to earn the love. All these different things that we're going to look at a little bit later. Uh, These lies that... um, we tell ourselves that it becomes sort of part of our being and affect the way that we interact with others in the world. It is hard to return love to God if we think ourselves are unlovable. I was going to show you this video, and it's one of the cheesiest things you've ever seen, but it's something I remember from my childhood, and I think it's, it's very valuable. It's Mr. Rogers. You know Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers' neighborhood aggravated me. I didn't like it, but there's... And the little puppet he has, Mr. Rogers has some pretty brilliant stuff. The little puppet, Daniel the Tiger, and he's sad one day in his clock because he thinks he's a mistake. And he's convinced himself he's a mistake. And so he sings this little song that is kind of aggravating. But uh, you can watch the video yourself. I have a better video to show y'all today than that. Uh, He thinks he's a mistake. And again, as cheesy as it is, a lot of kids who watch that show, it resonates because they, their upbringing or different things they've been taught or told themselves, think that are a mistake. But yet, even though we may feel that we are unlovable, we still yearn or long to be loved, to be accepted, to be affirmed. This is one of the fundamental human desires. And so... Even though we may think we're unlovable because of, of, of our sin, because of things that were done to us, we're not. God's love is, as Archbishop Hughes said the other day, not just uncon- unconditional, it's faithful. God doesn't give up on us. He doesn't toss us out. He doesn't think we're a mistake. He loves us for who we are, not for what we do, and he loves us in spite of what we've done. Ratzinger, if you read that thing, what it means to be a Christian. He lo- God loves us. Why? Because he's good. He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't look down on us. He doesn't get frustrated or angry. It's a real love, a merciful love, a tender love. In fact, we could say that he loves us more when we are weak, sinful, and broken. We've got to highlight this. We've got to highlight this. The characteristics of God's love. I think we can look at Paul's hymn to love. Uh, that, that, uh, that's why I told you to read a Morris Letizia that section there, number four, where he goes over all these different characters. Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, love doesn't hold a grudge. These are the qualities of charity, quality of God's love. And if this is true, it means the Lord is never going to give up on us, no matter how bad we feel about ourselves, no matter how much we have made up. His love is merciful. And his love also means that it is good that we are alive. I think that, that, that part I gave from Paul Waddell, it's good that we're alive. He loves us. His love affirms our existence. Affirms our existence. So where, though, do we tend to experience that love? Well, we say it's not just enough to know. Right? We know all this. We've read uh, 1 Corinthians. We know that God loves us. We've read the Catechism. Where do we experience it? Particularly if we feel that we are unlovable or we we don't fully understand his love. Certainly we're going to experience it through prayer and through the sacraments. 
We see this often in the lives of the saints, the, the wounding of love, the transverberation of the heart of Teresa of Avila. But the truth is, this experience of love directly, even though it's open to all of us, is not the normative way, at least I believe, that God tends to communicate his love, or his healing, or his word, or his grace. In the Old Testament, yeah, we see the signs of, you know, God speaking to Moses, or the, the fire, the cloud of fire, the column of fire that led them through the desert at night. Even in the New Testament, God speaks from the heavens. This is my beloved son. But that's not the norm. How's the norm that God communicates and reveals himself in the Old Testament or in Scripture? How? Through the prophets. He uses humans to communicate. And even in Jesus, the apostles, he sends his apostles, you go heal, you go preach, you go love people, you go do these things. Of course, it's the Lord doing it through us, through the apostles, but it's what we call the principle of mediation. God chooses nine times out of ten to mediate his word, to mediate his grace, to mediate his love through us rather than working directly, even mediating it through the sacraments. Not saying he can't, but so often we're sitting here and saying, Lord, show me your love. It's like the the one sort of joke I tell because it's the one I remember that I can tell that's not inappropriate, but, you know, the guy, the flood's coming. And he says, Lord, save me. I trust in you. All of a sudden, you know, the car comes. Hey, the flood's coming. Let's get out of here. No, no, no. God's going to save me. Water comes. He has to go to the second floor. All of a sudden, a boat comes. Hey, let's go. No, no, no. God's going to save me. Finally, he's on top of the roof. The helicopter comes and says, dude, let's go. You're going to drown. No, no, no. I trust in God. It's going to save me. Helicopter leaves. The guy drowns, gets to the pearly gates, and he's mad at Jesus. Lord, you said if I ask it, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give it to me. Why didn't you? Because what are you talking about? I sent you a car, a boat, and a helicopter. That's the point. The Lord is trying to communicate to us. I know it's a silly joke, but the point is, he's trying to communicate to us through human means, but we're expecting him to work in the supernatural way. Nine times out of ten, that does not work. So this is the reason for the command to love our neighbor. Because he wants us to use, he wants to use us as instruments of his love. He wants to communicate his love to other people through us. That's why he pours his love into our hearts and the spirit so that we can be instruments. We can show his love to others. Does that make sense? This is, he didn't say, I want them to love each other for kind of, just for fun's sake. Tell them to hate each other. I mean, we already know, you all have learned, this is not how God is. It's not the arbitrariness of nominalism, the voluntaristic God. Love is a good thing. And so if we can understand this, this idea that we are called to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love our spouses, to love our friends, because we communicate God's love in a real way. This is why the importance of married love and love in the family, sacramental love, where eros is taken up to a higher level. Gaudium and Spes, 48, talking about love. Quote, authentic married love is caught up into divine love. 
and is governed and enriched by Christ's redeeming power and the saving activity of the church, so that this love may lead the spouses to God with powerful effect and may aid and strengthen them in sublime office of being a father or a mother, unquote. So that, that human love, that married love, that eros is caught up into divine love. It's transformed. They sort of, in a certain sense, intermingle with each other. So Benedict talks about the unity of eros and agape in married love. So why? Each spouse is called to love each other in that sacrament of marriage because the spouse is that consistent channel, the consistent reminder of the other spouse's God's love for them. Every time that the spouses love each other is a reminder in your face every day, even though maybe your breath stinks and you're not wearing makeup and you're in a bad, foul mood and the kids are getting on your nerves, that God loves you. And so when the spouses quit loving each other, they quit being those, those channels of love, that's when problems come in. But it's so necessary because there are going to be days when spouses feel unlovable. And for that other spouse to say, even though you're having a bad day, even though, yeah, you may have messed up, but I still love you. I still want what's good for you. I'm not giving up on you. This has powerful effect. Yes. Well, that's a good question. Let's see if we can get through this. And if it doesn't answer it, I'm pretty sure in a couple of classes we're going to, we're going to be able to, to answer it. We look at abuse and shame and healing. That's a good question, though. So, again, I'm going to try to answer it within the context of everything we're talking about here today, although I think... It may take that class in a few, a week or so to be able to fully answer it. Good question, though. Is the same love manifested in children? We know from a young age, children need that manifestation. They need to be affirmed. It's good that you are alive. It's a foundational experience. Children who, who don't grow up, who grow up in, in, let's say, in abusive homes or broken homes or parents don't love them because they're too narcissistic and centered on themselves, they grew up with a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And so we need to be able to have that love manifested within the context of the family. But again, if you don't know that you're lovable, if you have some deeper wound or some, some thing that stops you from being able to accept love, it's going to be very difficult for you on a human level, but even more on some sort of a spiritual divine level, to be able to communicate love to others. If you don't think it's necessarily good that you're alive, it's no way you're going to be able to affirm other people, particularly your spouse or your children, in the goodness of their existence. Question yourself. You're going to second-guess yourself. But this love has got to be, as we've already seen it, it's got to be more than, I love you. Words matter. Or even then, just really thinking about how much I love the other person. It has to be manifested. It has to be shown. Again, remember that the body is the sign of the person. And so it's going to be in our words and our actions and our deeds that we reveal the interior state of love we have in our hearts. Yes, Travell.
that they're obviously both faulty. Like on one hand, there's like the voluntaristic aspect where it's like, you know, uh, it's more like there's no like joy that comes from like loving other things, so it's more like out of duty, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to like self gift. Whereas on the other hand, you have kind of like the notion of like like the self help mentality where it's more like you know, there's this. I have no idea what I'm striving for, so I'm just going to try to figure it out, you know, with no concrete meaning, you know. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the Catholic worldview, it's an understanding that, like, it's knowing, it's having joy knowing who I am and what my gifts are, mm -hmm. and at the same time, it's being able to share those gifts with other people. Um, can you comment on, like, how we, you know, how we try to, like, solve those two well, I think as we continue today, we might be able, as again, with Jesse's question, I think I might be able to resolve some of that. Uh, if we do not resolve it today, there's a good chance that we talk about healing and, and, and how we, we repair that rift we might be able to. I'm not trying to avoid the question, but I think some of what you're talking about, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, uh, will be contained in here. And so, yeah, it's the sacrament of the body communicates what's interior. And we can do it through the hug. Children need to be held um, through the caress. But one of the most important ways of doing it, as I reflect on it, is actually through the gaze, G-A-Z-E, to be able to look upon with love, the look of love for another person. We as humans all want to be seen. We want to be respected. It's one of the things I think I mentioned, a lot of violence criminals, they'll say they want to be respected. That's why they did what they did. They want to be seen, recognized. And so often those who are poor and marginalized are not seen. And even in marriage, so often we get so used to just going through the routine that spouses think that they are not seen or recognized. Number 128 in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis talks about that. He says the aesthetic experience of love is expressed in that gaze which contemplates other persons as ends in themselves, even if they are infirm, elderly, or physically unattractive. A look of appreciation has enormous importance, and to begrudge it is usually hurtful to avert your eyes. How many things do spouses and children sometimes do in order to be noticed? Much hurt and many problems result when we stop looking at one another. This lies behind the complaints and grievances we often hear in families. My husband does not look at me. He acts as if I were invisible. Please look at me when I'm talking to you. My wife no longer looks at me. She only has eyes for our children. In my own home, nobody cares about me. They do not even see me. It is as if I did not exist. Love opens our eyes and enables us to see beyond all else the great worth of human being. So, hey, I see you. I recognize you. You're in pain. You're happy. It's good. You're, you're suffering. You need something. We often, and it's again the people that are closest to us, that we don't recognize that they are having problems. And sometimes they may want to hide it from us, and if we can't read souls, we're not Padre Pio, we won't be able to figure it out, but still, you get what I'm trying to say. One of my favorite quotes, actually probably my favorite quote that I like to use in homilies or in spiritual direction, is from Father Jacques Philippe from his book Interior Freedom. We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. The eyes may be those of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God, our Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope-filled in the world. 
And so I think that there's a, there's a truth here. I'm not saying, hey, if we just look at everybody with love, the world will change. No. But there's something about this idea of what does it mean to have proper self-love? I think in the same way, what does it mean to be chaste? What does it mean to be just? And we can sit here and we can go over and write out a list of it, but what would what would Aristotle say? What would how do we, how do we know what justice is? We look at the just man. We look at the person that we believe has a healthy sense of self-love. And I've done that. I've reflected on that in a fair bit. We're going to kind of try to do that when we look at purity. When someone who has purity of heart, how do we know? What are the qualities that we can see? And so in the person who has confidence, who knows that God loves them, who knows in a a real way that that they can love others, do we know people like that? I think Mother Teresa was like that. I think Therese was really like that. And so that's, I think, the real answer to your question there. It's something that there are going to be certain characteristics, but the best we can figure out is let's look at people that we know had a healthy love for themselves, not an egoistical love, not one that they were narcissistic, but they were able to know who they were and love others. This is what it means to be a sacrament, manifesting Christ, who is the sacrament of the Father. So we're all called, particularly as priests, to, to be the sacrament of Christ, but we're revealing the Father of uh, the God, the Father's love. And so what happens is the married couple, the family becomes that school of love. Not so much by, hey, love each other or teaching the catechism, but by actually living it out. And therefore, people come to know that they're loved and can share it with each other. And I think this is the root of the attack on the family uh, from a cultural perspective, but also a spiritual perspective. If it's supposed to be the where we come to know that we are loved and how to love other people as friends, as married couples and as Christians, if it's shattered, then that channel, that school of God's love is destroyed. And we come to believe more and more that we're not lovable. And I think that's a big part. That's what, that's what the whole thing from um, Mary Everstadt, part of the reason that so many people have identity issues and are searching out their identity in all these weird ways is because they didn't have their identity formed as individuals in the family. Because families are broken, because they're too caught up in social media, their own hobbies, their own selves. And as a result, that need for love, that need for acceptance, we find in places that are not holy. So this is why I think, y'all, marriage prep is so important. We're talking here specifically about marriage. And of course, I could give a class on love just when it comes to human formation. And we'll discuss this maybe a little bit more when we talk about the sacrament. In fact, I've kind of decided that we get to the states of life because Dr. Neil is talking so much about the sacrament theologically, reading Willette's book. Y'all are going to do that next semester or next year. And we're going to talk more about practical stuff, about problems you're going to face in working with married couples and with marriage prep. You cannot assure someone that their marriage will not fail. Marriages do fail. That's how it is. Certain people should have been married. Maybe you didn't know it. But you can give them the tools to hopefully find some success, find some happiness. And I think that, yeah, granted, we need to teach people about the sacrament and about communication and about love and all this and how to pray. But probably most important is a focus on human formation, about how to love, about what love is, 
and how the different types of love interact. I mean, it has to start young. I mean, John Paul II will look at, in Familiaris Consortio, talks about preparation for marriage. There's the remote, uh, the proximate, and the immediate. Remote goes back to the childhood. We're formed in our families. Your marriage prep or your vocational prep begins when you're a kid and how not only you were taught the faith, but how you were loved. And so I'll give a perfect sort of example, and this is something that I, I use a lot or a diagram I use a lot when working with marriage prep couples. Unless you're blessed and, and get to work in a good campus ministry for 11 years and mostly do marriages for couples that you do spiritual direction for or come to daily mass, most of the couples that you encounter will be cohabitating and fornicating. That is how it's going to be. All right, just how it is. And you, again, most of them don't know why they shouldn't be doing it. And so you're going to maybe try to give them a little theology of the body. But what I try to do is I said, let's look at these different types of love. Agape, God's love. Eros, let's even just call it Venus. Sexual love, the love of man and woman expressed in the body. And then we would have philia, friendship. You can ask most married couples, or ask this engaged couple, in your marriage, what percentage of the love exchanged is going to be erotic sexual love in a, in a marriage? Like, of all the love exchange, what percentage is going to be? What? Five. What? You, well, you, five, yeah, you'd be lucky if it's 5%. In reality, if you're going to even take the time of the, the month or the week that you're engaging in this type of behavior, it's probably more like 2% or 1%. But let's just say it's 5%, all right? The rest of that love is going to be philia. It's going to be friendship or agape or whatever it is. So what's happening is, though, in that prep for marriage, in that dating period, recording or wherever you call it, what's happening is, is so th let's say that this is, this is the triangle of marriage. And so here is Eros, there, because it's small. Here is the philia. And then I usually like put agape here because it sort of enshrouds everything, even though most people are not praying and probably not living in a state of grace, so they don't even know about that. But let's just say. So what happens is though, is this is how, just in general, in married love, life is going to be. Where your marriage is built on that firm foundation of friendship, of communication, of learning to know and, and cherish each other. But most people's preparation is like this. They make the foundation the sex. And maybe they're lucky that the sex is, or not they're lucky, they're most of the time, it's probably more like this, 25%. But still, can a triangle last long standing like this? No, it can't. And so the, 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 the pointy type, it's got to have the foundation that's more solid. If you, this is your marriage where it becomes sex all the time, and before, and you're dating, and it's all this physical stuff, then guess what? You realize... Oh, I'm married, and ooh, there's not as much sex. There's not as much physical intimacy, particularly as you get older. The wife doesn't want it as much. So 
like the man who came to me and said, Father, I thought about being a priest. I said, I don't know if I could be celibate. And then I got married, and after about five years, I realized I could. (laughs) We'll talk more about that when we get to celibacy. But this idea of what you think marriage is, what it really is, different. And so what happens is, but if you base it on that, it's not going to work, but it devolves into selfishness. Because if you're having sex before marriage, guess what? You don't want to have kids. And so it's just about your own pleasure. And then if you're living together, so couples together, this, I'll give you my favorite thing to say. This is a showstopper. We can talk about this later. We can talk about cohabitation. So I don't want to give my joke away, but like, hey, you're all living together. Yeah, we're living together, Father. Why are you living together? For financial reasons. You know, you know it's just so hard to have a house, and he has to work two jobs, da, da, da. Well, okay, you're living together, but are you living like brothers and sisters, or are you having sex? Oh, no, Father, we're having sex. Are you having sex for financial reasons? <laughs> uh, no. That's not how it works. You're not married. We'll get into that later. The thing is, it shows us that, that Eros, which is Venus is under there, has got to be disciplined. Without it, why don't you just do whatever you want to do? It ends up taking over and turning into selfishness. John Paul II phrases love and responsibility. Christians didn't poison Eros. They didn't say don't have fun. But in a very practical level, it has to be disciplined. We've purified it. We're going to see this more when we look at chastity. And so I think couples who live marriage well, live their sexual life well, is it easy? No, it's not. It's a cross. But they, we can, but even that erotic love, they'll know we are Christians, not only by our agape, but by the way we live our eros, love of man and woman. But still, I think friendship is the most important. You know, I, you know, I'll ask couples, like, do you, do you know each other? Do you know, what is, what is, friends have the same shared interest? Do you like being in each other's presence? This is absolutely true. It makes up most of love and marriage. And eros is part of it, but there's got to be a willing, agog, I mean, an agape, I mean, a willingness to die to self, to put the other person first. But still, how to balance in marriage, eros, agape, philia, it goes back, you know, to, to what does genuine Christian love look like in marriage? It, it, it's going to look different for different people. It's going to take virtue. It's going to take listening to the promptings of the Spirit. It's going to take some time to figure it out. But the challenge is, is we live in that eroticized society where everybody just starts having sex as an expression of love. You see it in the movies. Or it just becomes uh, romanticized. And so I see a lot of the times couples, uh, one second, they, they get married and they're like, all right, we're not having all this sex and he's not perfect and he's not Prince Charming. Is this all there is to love? You've got to ground them in reality. Now, granted, I, I, some people say, well, Father, you're just shattering our dreams. That's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> But your marriage is more than sex. And so I, you know, I'll say, like, imagine that y'all are on your honeymoon, you just consummated your marriage, and y'all are driving on the beach, you know, on the, the coast or something, and then you're in Hawaii, and your car goes off the cliff, and your spouse is paralyzed. No more sex. You just got to take care of them for the rest of your life. What role does sex play? Because one day, it ain't going to play as big of a role as you would like it to play. Love, love, though, that's the thing, is we avoid that idea. Love primarily is not looking in each other's eyes. 
the lover's looking outwards. We're looking to something. We're moving towards something without just getting lost in love. You can like all your love songs, but it, it's, it's, it's not what marriage is. Yes, Jesse? Well, that's the thing is, it's funny, you know, he, we could talk, we'll talk about that probably a little bit more when we get to marriage, but I'm, I'm a believer, so I'm saying it, it's, it's hard to say, oh, well, let's take all the love shown today and compartmentalize agape, agape here, philia here. I think that's why I put it here. Agape, in a certain sense, takes the love and lifts it up uh, because both eros and philia all have characteristics of agape, but... It's hard to, I think, even though you can look at all the different scripture scholars and was it, um, what was it, uh, even C.S. Lewis describes it, but they're going to be traits of each other that sort of flow into each other. That's why, I mean, I could sit here and say, let's talk about all the different traits, but in practicality, it's like a gumbo. All the flavors kind of flow in together. Um, yeah, it's it's a good gumbo. It's a gumbo that you get from Lafayette or Generette, not from Alabama or something, or Arkansas. But here's the thing, though. We can still refuse God's love. Maybe because we think we're unlovable. We can also refuse it because of our heart, hardness of heart. And the Lord will never force us. I mean, there's so many different reasons. We can, because of our sin, because whatever, so I'm sort of circling back to God's love here after that little excursus. He's always going to respect our freedom. Probably my favorite gospel passage, and preach on it a lot, is the prodigal son. It's the older son who refuses the invitation to come into the house, refuses the father's love. Why? Because he's comparing himself to the younger son. Look at him. Look at all the stuff you're doing for him. You didn't give me anything. He's angry. He focuses on what he doesn't have. But does the, and the father pleads with him. But does the father ever say to the servants, drag his behind inside? No. He leaves him there, outside in the dark, while all the party is going on for him to be miserable. Could we see that as an example of the self-exclusion from hell, from heaven? Is he in hell? Because he's excluding himself deliberately, from the Father's house. I think you could see that parable as the explanation of actually heaven, hell, and purgatory. The younger son, even though he's filled with shame, he's out, he's been eating the pig food, he's excommunicated himself, he told the Father to go shove it, but even in shame, he returns and accepts the love of the Father. A merciful love. The Father's waiting for him to return. He's not sitting here saying, I bet that boy never shows up. I hope he never does. I'm going to chew him out. He's able to see the sun beneath the rags, beneath the dirt, and the sun probably can't even see himself. And so he restores his dignity and identity. Remember, before the younger son gets into the house, he has to be cleaned up. That's purgatory. He has to be clean. He has to have the clothes put on. He didn't say, ah, you smell like a filthy pig. Come on in the house. Let's have a party. No. And so the son allows himself to be loved. I would even say he allows himself to be received. And so he's welcomed into the father's house with great rejoicing and celebration. The father delights in the son, and the son allows himself to be feted, the fet, the party. He allows this party to take place 
uh, on his behalf. And so this is an aspect of love that I think that we neglect and probably is what makes it really hard to allow ourselves to be loved, even if, let's say, we're filled with shame or insecurity, even if we're not. Thomas defines, and the church generally defines love, as that willing the good for another person. And yeah, it's a choice. It's not always easy, as we'll see, to love another person. And truly, love is more than a feeling. I hear that all the time, oh, you know, all that hippie stuff, love, dove, peace. There's a tendency, at least in my time, there was a tendency at the seminary coming right after the 70s and 80s, you know, to reject that. Moral theology and love, it was warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. No. Yes, we can't rely on feelings alone. However, we cannot deny that as humans, emotions can and should play a part in our moral life and in our love for other people. Spouses on their wedding day, they don't say, I love you. No, they feel it. When parents tell their children they love them, I love you, child, but in a very detached and holy way. (laughs) No, it's all right. Friends who love each other, they care for each other, they're excited to see each other and be in their presence. So we can say that, that love delights us, or love leads us to delight in the beloved. God delights in us. Psalm 149.4, the Lord delights in his people. Do we believe that God not only loves us, but he also delights in us? Now, I've heard a lot of the time, particularly in working with college students, they say that they know that God loves them, or their parents love them, but they feel like that God or their parents don't like them, don't want to be around them. That, 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 that maybe they're even a, a burden to others. I'm a burden. He loves me, but he just put, puts up with me. Um, and it's because it's easy to say, well, my parents or God or my priest uh, have to love me. It's a duty, a responsibility. So what happens is, is as much as we need to love another, and yes, it is willing the good for another, do we actually delight in other people? What role does delighting in the other, rejoicing in the other, as the father over the return of the younger son have in love? There's this wonderful article that I read about teachers. Whenever the, the kids come into the class, it says, does your face light up? Does your face light up? I'm so happy to see you in class, particularly for those little kids who need that affirmation because they probably are not getting it at home. Does your face light up? Think about people that are a good friend when y'all travel back home that you haven't seen in a while. Oh, it's so good to see you. Does your face light up? Or do you say, I haven't seen you in six months. It's wonderful. I have agape love for you. <laughs> no, your face lights up. And it's a delight in the simple existence. Not for what they do. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. You brought me a case of beer. No, I'm happy to see you because... You are you. It's good that you are alive. Not for what they do or even bring to me. I read one place that there's this article, which I love and I've preached on before. They interviewed a bunch of uh, kid athletes, little kids who play sports. And you know how terrible parents could be these days with sports. What are the most important words in the poll they did amongst these kids, the kids that meant the most to them? You'd think, good job, 
I'm proud of you. Those are all good. It's not what meant the most. Anybody want to take a guess what meant the most? Close, but no. I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play. I don't care if you had home run. I don't care about any of those things. I just love to watch you play. I take delight in you being a kid and playing and having a great time. So true love, not all the time, we know, produces joy, rejoicing, delight. Mother Teresa, who knew a lot about this, a lot about love, a lot about joy, and a lot about darkness. A joyful heart is a normal result of a heart burning with love. She gives most who gives joy. It's a taste of that beatitude. You'll probably talked about that. Moving beyond the deontological ethic, which is I do this because of duty, and I'm going to do it, but I hate it. I'm not going to feel good. That's Kant. To a virtue-based ethic, where, or one filled with the Spirit. I'm doing this, and I'm not doing it because it feels good, but I take delight in helping others, in giving to others. That's a, it reinforces it, but it's good. The joy for the one who receives, but also for the one who gives. But to give it, we must be able to receive it first, to know that we are loved and forgiven. Yes? Yeah. If I remember correctly, isn't, you, you're saying that all of love can take it in some ways to witness together. Uh, I, th- some, I think that they flow into each other. Then there's a fourth love, too. Correct. The Affection, the yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that like childlike love? Like love for a child? In, in a sense, so is there any of that, I guess, in a marriage, like in some ways, like, I guess the level of bringing a child up and teaching a child, and like... I think that would be a great thesis for your 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 Maple, uh, whatever your Dibs. Dib, yeah, whatever Mats, your Mats thing, yeah. I guess you could say that, yeah. I mean, there's a certain affection. And granted, I think C. Lewis, Lewis talks about like the affection, for, like dogs and pizza and stuff. But still, there is that childlike love. I would say that yeah, you you never abandon all of those things. Agape isn't like here and the other ones are here. They kind of flow into each other. And so as humans, we're going to integrate all of those. But I, I didn't really fully consider that. I'll think more about it, but I think that's a, a valid point. You can write your thesis on that. Treville will direct you. <laughs> Did you have a question? Or are you just stretching? Okay. So, okay. so if we know this, if we know that God loves us, if we know that love, not all the time, but a lot of the time, should bring joy and happiness and that it's a great thing to love, and that love changes people's lives, and that we're lovable. Why is it so hard to show love and to let ourselves be loved? Who wants to guess? Besides the fact that we feel unlovable. But we know all this. And let's even if we've found healing, we've gone to therapy, we've, we've read books on healing prayer, we've been prayed with, whatever. We've... we've let children delight in us, because the kids do delight in you, and it makes a big deal. I will give you the answer. It comes from our good friend C.S. Lewis. Another one of my favorite quotes, one that you probably heard. He says, to love at all is to be, or what we talked about before, vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in this casket, 
safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Unquote. We don't want to love or be loved because we expose ourselves. We become vulnerable to the broken heart. We're able to be wounded. So out of fear of this, either because we know that it stinks to be wounded or we've been wounded in the past, we put up walls against family members, friends, marriages, families. We've got to have boundaries. That's true. And we always talk about that. You can't, uh, they're good, they're necessary, but they can't be walls. And so what happens is, is when we are fearful of vulnerability, of being hurt, of having our heart broken, this leads to insecurity, feeling unsafe. When I am fearful, I feel unsafe. Insecure means to feel unsafe. But if we're going to really be able to love, we've got to be willing to take down the walls and be vulnerable. To be real human beings, to not hide behind the walls. So let's look at this. You know, I talked about it. We talk about the gift of self and the body meant for gift, but how there's a receptive dimension to it also. So I'll ask you this question. It's one I asked a lot of people, and I get the same answer all the time. For you in here, and maybe for most people, what is easier? Let's say that this is a book, this love and responsibility one that Austin doesn't have because he got the old version. And I want to give Austin the book as a gift. I'm gonna, no, not really. But <laughs> your archbishop, your vocation director will give it to you as a gift. I give the gift. What is more difficult for most people or for you to give the gift or to receive the gift? Receive. Who says give? Raise your hand. All right. Weirdos. Uh, who says to receive? Most people will say receive, except for Jesse and Donnie, who are just so receptive and open. That's beautiful. Very beautiful. Uh, it's true. Most people, you can look at the test. Why? Why is it easier to give? Why is it easier to give than to receive a, a gift? Well, it does, but Patrick, you raised your hand. Yeah, you could exactly. You feel like you don't deserve it. Like I don't deserve this gift. I'm not worthy of it. It's correct, but also. Well, it means that you don't. You didn't have it to begin with. I guess like you, you needed something else, or you wanted something else. That person had what you didn't. True. They could be feelings of like pulling the person there. You could feel that way. But I think, for at least my perspective, it's it's these are all true. But what I was looking for, if I give you the gift, I am in control. When you receive the gift, how you receive the gift. If you have to receive a gift, you're waiting. You don't know when. You don't know what you're going to receive. You're not in control. You're much more vulnerable. You're much more vulnerable. And in fact, I could receive the gift, but I could have a big bomb in here to blow Austin up. Yeah. So he's more vulnerable. Now, what about, though, the gift of self? So here I'm giving an object, an object. It's difficult to receive. What about the actual gift of self? Even, let's say, in the marital act, what's more difficult? Is it more difficult to give the gift of self or receive the gift of self? 
it's going to be more difficult to receive the gift of self. Why? Because in the same way, I'm not in control. I'm exposing myself and receiving that gift. Yeah, giving myself, I'm exposing myself to be rejected. But also, I'm exposing myself, i got to be intimate here. What if I let this person in and they hurt me? I'm going to reject them now so they don't have to be vulnerable. But I think, though, that there's an even deeper level. Because if I give the gift of myself, if I'm giving myself to you, boy, oh boy, is it hard to allow myself to be received. Not just the gift, but myself to be received, to be loved by another. I'm giving myself to you, and just like that younger son giving himself to the father, here, I'm giving myself, I'm sorry for what I've done. Total gift of self. The father could say, out of hell with you, I don't want you. Or he could receive, so we could allow ourselves to be received, and then that knife could go right in our back. It's an even greater vulnerability. But I think this allowing ourselves to be received as gift by another, the vulnerability that entails by putting ourselves out there, is the key to knowing love. First with God, Lord, take me even though I feel unworthy, I feel like I don't deserve it, I've got all these sins, but I'm still going to be there for God and for others. It's kind of what I was driving at last week, or if, I, if someone would have given that actual answer, I didn't say it. Christ receives the child, but the child allows himself to be received. Now, not all kids do that. I don't even picked up. And so often we're like that. But the child and his innocence and his defenselessness, but more importantly, in his trust in Jesus, allows Christ to pick him up. Is this the heart of spiritual childhood? Is this the heart of letting God love us? That we know he doesn't mean us any harm and we allow ourselves to be received, to be picked up? It's a vulnerability, a radical trust that Jesus will not allow us to be harmed. And so the child who allows himself to be received by the father or the mother and held, there's a joy that comes from that. A lot to meditate on. But here's the fact, y'all. This all sounds nice and delight and giving and receiving and Mr. Rogers and all that kind of good stuff. And boy, oh boy, I'm running behind time here. I have a lot. Not always easy to love another person. It's easy to love in general. I can, I love everybody. But it's hard to love the person right in front of you, particularly if they make demands on you or if they've hurt you or betrayed you, especially if it's someone close to you, a spouse, a friend, a child. What about when it entails suffering to love another person, having to make sacrifices? It's not easy, but you still choose the good. Look at the words of Jesus. My yoke is easy and my burden light. How is the cross light? Why? Love. If I love someone, even though it is difficult, I am willing to do it, not out of a burden of duty, but out of a joy to serve. Think of the sick neighbor. You don't know him. They need food. They call you up and say, hey, Kevin, bro, I'm hungry. You don't know this dude. So you may go, get a can of soup, pour it, put it in the microwave, drop it at his doorstep. I don't want to catch you Rona. Here, eat it. But if it's someone you really care about and you love, you're going to go cut the vegetables, you're going to cook the soup, you're going to even go, even if it's not weird and creepy, feed it to them. <laughs> it's an old lady or something like that. You're going to feed it to them. Justice animates the first one. Love animates the second one. It's the love that goes beyond what is required. 
even when it's difficult. Doesn't cut corners. St. Therese said the, the language that God doesn't know, or what is it, the science that God doesn't know is arithmetic. God doesn't calculate. From that passage from, from Ratzinger that I gave you all to read, the Christian is the person who does not calculate. Rather, he does something extra. He is, in fact, the lover who doesn't ask, how much further can I go and still remain within the realm of venial sin, stopping short of mortal sin? Rather, the Christian is the one who simply seeks what is good without any calculation. And go on for the rest of the quote. You give yourself generously. It's that superabundance of love. What more can I do to serve this person, even if it's difficult? It's even to the point where you're willing to take on the other person's suffering. As a priest, you're going to encounter people like this. I remember Miss Rose, married 50 years. Her husband, for 45 of those years, was bedridden. They lived in a shack, poor as can be. She had big swell and wounds on her legs, but she still took care of that man. She didn't have health help coming in. She couldn't afford it. And let me tell you, in 45 years, never a bed sore. Never a bed sore. And she didn't have those fancy beds. Why? Because she put talc on his body. She took care of him. That's difficult. But she was so joyful in doing it. I remember going to Ms. Rose's house, packed funeral after she passed away. It was a joy to serve. Hard. But as Balthazar says, what appears as cold duty to one who does not love is for love a joy. That's the difference. Unfortunately, spouses always can't take care of their, their, their weak spouses, but it's true. But when we move away from that, particularly in our priesthood or our marriage, where I'm doing this because I have to. I'm helping you or serving you or saying mass because I have to instead of love. And granted, it's not going to be easy all of the time, then things change. Balthazar says, the more we remove ourselves from the innermost core of love, the more the commandment to love acquires for us a negative character and becomes a prohibition. In this way, the sweet inevitability of the lover's free choice to love is transformed into the harsh compulsion of an obligation. Balthazar's whole thing was, love takes the form of a vow. If I love you, I bind myself to you. I am obedient to you, not because I have to be, but it comes from the interior. It's an inner vow. It's an inner vow. And what about those when people, they hurt you, your enemies. You may lose your feelings, but you're still willing to do it. The person who aggravates you. Therese says, charity consistent, bearing all our neighbor's defects. Not being surprised at their weaknesses, but edified at their smallest virtues. Understanding is the key. The willingness to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. To forgive the other person. It's not easy. We're going to bless our enemies. And the road often to, from forgiveness to reconciliation can be a very, very long one, particularly in a community. Particularly if we're proud and we don't want to apologize that we've hurt people. Most of what I've talked about is marriage. What about priests and religious? We're called to image Christ. Called to be that image of Christ who is the image of the Father's love. To be channels of his self-sacrificial love. And believe me, in community and in parishes, you are going to have plenty of opportunity. People are going to be looking to crucify you all the time. And so seminary community is how we train for it, ideally. Formation is here to make us more ready, more selfless to serve as Christ did. But it's not always easy. 
We all know it. I'm going to come to the seminary and everybody's going to be a saint. Womp womp, not the case. But we're still called to love. But in order to do so, as priests or seminarians, we have got to be grounded in our identity as sons, then brothers, husbands, and fathers. If you're insecure, if you're fearful, if you don't think you're lovable, you are not going to be able to be confident enough to minister to others. You're going to be the priest of the nun who ministers out of your neediness rather than your confidence in your identity. Days, we're all going to be needy. We're going to have bad days. But fellas, do what it takes now, and ladies, to come to know the Lord's love for you so that you are not stopped from, sh- from working in your identity. And there's so many obstacles. Shame, we'll talk a little more about that. Some say pride. What makes it hard is pride. I know that I don't have a lot of time, but I'm still going to show this video. You know, I have a hard time loving or, or you know, because I'm prideful or letting people love me because I'm prideful. And so we see that in community when they gossip, talking about our brothers, tearing them down, and too prideful. No, they're really not prideful. Uh, it's something else. You're like the Pharisees who were threatened by Jesus. And as a result, Act like You know the Lord loves you, you don't do stuff like this. 
and seminarians, I know it is. We compare, we compete, we defeat, we all that. No. Know the Lord's love for us. Don't fall into this kind of stuff, particularly as a priest. you got to be a man. you got to be tough, but you also have to get in touch with your feelings. Don't repress them. They come out in some very weird ways. Christ was formed by his mother. He knew. He had that Marian heart, able to be tender, able to be loving, but still able to be firm. We need boundaries, but we do not need to be too formal to hide behind our religion, behind our liturgy, behind our faith. We can't allow this. Father Philippe says, we notice a strong emotional dimension in Paul's spiritual fatherhood. It is good for the priest, who is so much more than just a civil servant, and also for his flock who needs this loving warmth. We must not, amidst all of today's problems, lose this dimension. So you've got to be that, that strong man, a tender warrior who knows how to fight for the children, but also knows how to bring peace and safety and secure them in identities. There's other issues, too. I think sometimes we've seen men struggle with being friends with each other. And we also sometimes struggle with uh, being close to Jesus uh, to let him in. But again, so did Peter. Lord, do you love me? Peter, do you love me, Agape? I love you, Philia. Do you love me, Agape? I love you, Philia. And then Jesus says, do you love me, Philia? And Peter says, yeah, I do love you, Philia. Awesome, let's go. The Lord will take whatever you can give. Allow your time to be with him. Do this so that you can be channels of Christ and the Father's love. If you don't know it, if you don't deal with your own stuff, if you don't live in that love, it's going to be hard to be channels for others. All of us hopefully have experienced it through other people in our lives, maybe through prayer. But most of the time, in my own experience, I've experienced the Lord's love by being a channel to other people as a priest. And so there's a lot that I can give, and I have about 10 minutes, so actually more time. Father Philippe, have you all read Spiritual Priestly Fatherhood yet? His little new book is fantastic. Everything Father Philippe does is fantastic. But he says, if we priests are faithful to our mission, there are moments of grace where we feel our hearts filled up with deep love and immense tenderness for the people that God entrusts to us. We feel a paternal, even almost maternal love for them. At these times, we feel our hearts fill up with a love that is greater than ourselves, a love that cannot find its source in our hearts alone. We feel the tenderness, a much greater compassion, stronger and purer than our natural capabilities could attain. This is God who is coming to love through us, who gives us the grace to feel his kindness and pity for his children, and receive our earthly hearts the same sentiments of the very heart of Jesus. And really, I've experienced this. Most priests that I know experience it. But you've got to have a pure heart. You've got to try to do your best to avoid the near occasion of sin and lust. If you fall, go receive some mercy. But it's what changes lives. And so that Paul Waddell thing that I gave you about the first principle of love, if we want to love others, it's going to be the most effective, more than anything you say, more than how much incense you use at Mass, more than how much you quote St. Thomas Aquinas. All of these things are great, but it's this willingness to serve others, to give yourself to others, and to love them brings people to life. Existing is one thing, but meaningful existence, what else says, hopeful existence depends on love. We see evidence of this all the time. All of us have witnessed the dramatic transformation that can happen when people experience being loved. They visibly come to life in ways that were not before. 
Sometimes we say that even seem like totally different persons. So marked is the contrast between who they were before and who they are now that they are loved. There was a joy, spirit, and hope marking their lives and love that was so notably absent before that it is no exaggeration to say that they have been recreated. This see, so to see this happens in not only delight, a delight to them and those who love them, but it's also delightful to God who gives us the exalted vocation to love. So you're going to see that, serving people, loving people, being present to them, accompanying them. You'll change their lives, and you will receive something back. You're not doing it because you want to receive something back, but as a pastor, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to love. You're going to expose yourself for them to attack you, yes, but to also love you back. And they'll change your heart. I know my 11 years and working with the students uh, and, and, and receiving the love and affection back from them because you're really in the middle of it, it's what made me such a sweetheart. Treville made me a sweetheart. Austin made me a sweetheart. And this is the key to converting hearts. I'm not saying we don't teach. I'm not saying we don't preach. I'm not saying that sometimes we don't need to crack the whip. But as our good friend Balthazar says, the disciples are never guaranteed that Peter's power of the keys and the institutional side of the church will convince and convert people. But love can do so. And whatever it has taken literally, it always has done so. The saints who genuinely loved even succeeded in making the keys seem appealing and in reconciling those who are distrustful of them for they are the keys to love and must be used in love. Uh, unquote. It is so true. There are going to be people you encounter who are living terrible lives of sins, who disagree with the church, who hate you, who hate God. You've got to be careful. You don't want to push yourself or to you realize in the spirit of prudence that maybe I can't help this person. But you ain't going to say anything that's going to change them. And I think if you look at my time as a priest, particularly the direction that I did, or with people, how many of like, did, did I say something that was really wise or converted you? No, probably not. But it's the witness of I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to hear your confession when you come. I'm going to keep encouraging you. I mean, to smack that hand a little bit every once in a while to get you back on the right track. But th- that's what it takes. So this love I'm talking about is not just feelings and emotions. It's a commitment. It's a willing to accompany. It's Jesus with the, apostles, the disciples walking to Emmaus in the dark. I'm not giving up on you but I'm going to do my best to explain and be present to you and give myself to you. And so this is why lust, selfishness, sin, which we're going to look at next time is so pernicious, kills love and our ability to witness the Father's love to others and often, too, can shake our own doubt because we let shame set in and we hide and we can't live in the gaze of the Heavenly Father. So, made it in time. It's a lot. And we watched a scene from Mean Girls. Don't be mean girls as seminarians or as priests. Do you notice the guys who do not gossip, the guys who don't get caught up in all that petty stuff are the ones who generally are confident and know the Lord loves them. If you find yourself falling into that, ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is there something missing? Do I need to go talk to the therapist? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to talk to my spiritual director? Because you don't need that as priests. Priests ripping each other to shreds, gossiping, acting like a bunch of little girls on the playground or doing all this kind of stuff. Pas bon. Not good. But y'all are above that. And I have faith in you. We're going to make it out. We're going to talk about sin, shame, concupiscence next time. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.
is now and shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.